Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Welcome listeners of I Am Speaking with Shailshi and Kosha. We have an amazing guest today. His name is Casey Gustafson. A story that was so nuanced and layered that we, in the middle of the interview, decided that this was going to be our first two-part episode. So we asked him if he would come back and tell the second part of his story. Um, Both episodes will be released this week. So episode one, you're getting today. Episode part two of Casey is Speaking will be released later this week. And I promise you, it is worth it. And the fact that he's come out so positive and so wonderful and so friendly is truly, truly extraordinary. Casey's story speaks so strongly to what the intersection of of life means. So you'll hear parts about uh, you know, religious indoctrination. You'll hear about being part of the LGBT community and substance abuse and mental health challenges and mental illness. We don't. None of this lives in a vacuum, and they intersect. And Casey's story really, really speaks to that. Listen up. It, it's definitely worth the time. He is speaking. Hi, so I'm Casey. I go by he, him, his. Those are my pronouns, and I am speaking. Hi, Casey. Hi, Casey. Welcome to Hi. our Thank podcast. You. Thank you for being our guest today. So most of our listeners have, who have been with us for a while know that we, um, for a long time, had been interviewing our friends, our family, you know, people that we knew, um, and but we've more and more had people that we don't know that we found through various other, you know, avenues but this is you do have a connection with kosha right i do yeah yeah so yeah i mean oh gosh i moved to oak park my partner and i moved to oak park uh 2019 um and i we we did did that uh, because a project that i was working on in oak park uh it was a building albion oak park um and we do a lot of marketing stuff we we do a lot of with the chamber uh and i believe you came for like a coffee connection thing oh I remember, I don't know. I remember being on a couch. I remember meeting you. And I think it was, I think it was at Albion. I think it was one of our things that I met you, Kosa. No, as the Albion was 
just opening the opening and trying to get like a lot of people in you had done the business after hours and I was working with the chamber at the time um yeah and that's how we met and we kind of hit it off like it went it yeah. was just uh, a really great connection and then um I met your fiance and it's interesting so I know we're going to talk a lot about your recovery you didn't go through I mean business after hours there's a lot of alcohol and stuff and you were not like no I don't drink no I don't drink like I went and got my hair cut by your fiance Chad and I was like oh the four of us should go out for a drink he goes, yeah, Casey's in recovery. And I was like, oh my God, I've known Casey for like three months and we <laughs> had alcohol around all the time at those events and you never had mentioned it. Yeah. So, I mean, um, it's a little bit about that. Like, I mean, uh, now, gosh, I've been sober over five years. Um, as alcohol was, def- as I realized um, in recovery, like alcohol was definitely a problem. I definitely used it alcoholically, uh, but it wasn't my first love. Like I... I got to the rooms because of meth. Like uh, that was my drug of choice. So like alcohol, like I, for, for months after being in recovery and like not drinking, I like months, I'm like, I think I can drink. I think I can drink. And you would think of like thinking that almost every day, you would think, oh, maybe I do have a problem with alcohol, but I think I need to like be able to drink. And I did like it. You know, I never got many, uh, very many repercussions from drinking. Um, I was an affable drunk. Um, I thought I was hilarious. I have so much social anxiety. I have so, like, I am so internal and I need, I need that. Or I needed that to just open up and to feel okay with myself. Meth came along and it made me feel even more like, okay. Uh, and we'll get to all of those reasons why, I guess. You know, Kosha had put you put your interview on the calendar and said, yeah, Casey's, you know, told me the story um, and said that you were in recovery and um, had been sober for several years. You know, I think when people think about recovery, they almost always think about alcohol. You're absolutely right. Meth is a whole nother level (laughs) in the 80s and 90s. And even in the, you know, sort of early to mid 2000s, gay spaces were primarily bars. And so alcohol was part of the scene and drugs became part of the scene because that's where you could go and feel safe and be yourself and, you know, also meet other people that you might want to hook up with or date or any number of things that people do when they go to bars. Exactly. Which is not true, I think, in in heterosexual spaces or spaces in the mainstream for heterosexual people, which is not everything revolves around alcohol all the time. Like you can meet people in the coffee shop. Yeah. You can meet anyone on the street. Like all you have to do, like you can look at a girl and most likely as a guy, you're going to look at a girl and like have a connection. Cause most likely there's more often than not, they're a cis uh, heterosexual person. So like you can connect and like maybe do your thing. Like, right. Gay spaces, like you see a hot guy, you like you get, like you have to like figure it out, and there's there's ways to figure it out, <laughs> um, but it's not as easy as just like, hey, what's up? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You're doing more math. So much like oh, this this hyper. I mean, like you know, hyper vigilance is a part of my story because of this need to to make sure that I did not look or act gay. Um, so yeah. That's a really great segue into going backwards, right? 
hypervigilance is a big part of your story because you were so keenly aware that looking, acting, giving off any hint of being gay was something you did not want to do. So let's, this is where I get to go. Let's rewind all the way back to the beginning. Perfect. Where are you, are you from the Midwest? Did you grow up around Chicago? Um, I, well, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Detroit area. So I'm um, the uh, downriver area of, of Detroit. Uh, very blue collar, mostly white. Uh, my dad was a was an auto worker, union, very toxic masculinity all around um, for, for the most part. And there was like a way to be a man, get your hands dirty and provide for the family. Yeah, play sports. In many parts of the country, it hasn't changed. In a lot of, you know, in, in more metropolitan large cities, um, it there's a lot more flexibility, although a lot being some, it's like when there's no flexibility and then there's some flexibility, it's a lot more. Prob- it's still like that in a lot of places. What about your family? So I, you just said you had a dad. I assume you had a mom. So that's how that goes. Yeah, yeah. So um, at one point, <laughs> at one point, <laughs> mom and dad, uh, so I have a brother 18 months older than I am, like the Irish twins kind of thing. Typical family that I would say, though my parents got divorced when I was eight. Part of this, so my mom was uh, evangelical Baptist, but like Easter and Christmas typically was like that kind of that kind of Christian. And then my dad's side was Catholic. He was an altar boy, did not he was like so averse to anything, but my grandmother would take us sometimes. Um, so religion is definitely a part of my story, but like not specifically that it really came from my mom and dad. The schools weren't exactly great where I was at. Uh, so like I remember and when I was really little, my mom was like a secretary or like the front desk person at a Montessori. So we were able to go to the Montessori. I, I was like pre-kindergarten for that. And my brother got to first grade and like had to be taken out because like literally homework till nine o'clock every night. And she's like, this is, this is not, this is not okay. Uh, so, but she didn't want to go to the public schools. The public schools were not the greatest uh, in Taylor. So uh, there was this light life Christian school, a Methodist school that we were enrolled in. So I kind of like got my indoctrination into uh, evangelicalism through that. I remember, I think I was in second grade when I said like the Lord's prayer and, and got saved, uh, if you will. Moved, we moved away to Kansas because my mom remarried and married a person in the Navy, my stepdad, and then we moved to Kansas. And then I did a public school in Kansas. Um, but then I went back to live with my dad uh, and we went back to that Methodist high school and that's where like religion really kind of took took a hold of me. Like I uh, really, it was definitely my decision to go to this because my friends were going to these youth groups. Long story short, like I did not feel I felt very lost at that point in my life. When I was like, I just started feeling like I was like coming into my own in Kansas with uh, with my friends. Coming back to Michigan, I was super lost, super like super confused because I was definitely knew that the, something was going on inside me that like I was definitely different. I, I mean, I knew I was gay. Knew it was, and at that time, knew it was bad. Like, knew it was wrong. Now coming to Detroit again, back to this whole scenario again, um, and starting to go to these youth groups. And it was a lot of fun. And, like, people liked me. And, like... Can I just clarify? You said you wanted to go to the youth group. Yeah. 
part of this, I think a lot of the the guilt that comes out of these types of stories is I wanted to do that. No one shoved me into that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I wanted it because like they were fun and they were accepting it. Like finally I belonged. Mm-hmm. Finally I belonged. Um, my story is very much this, this need to belong. If you're talking about a moving from a place where you had been for a while at a very vulnerable time in your life and looking for friends and a group and an identity, right? 14 to 22 is when all of that stuff really happens, right? As, as children, as children, who people who used to be children become adults, they differentiate from their families and then they go to find their identities in the world. And that means who am I friends with? Who am I hanging out with? What do I care about? What do I believe in? And it feels good to be wanted around. It feels good to feel like this is where I belong who am I, right? So much of this is a question of who am I and where do I belong? Early to late teens, you know, adolescence basically is when that stuff really hits home. And so that's, I don't know that any of us would go, well, why the hell would you join a a Christian youth group, you know, when you're 17 and you're just looking for friends? Of course you would. It's the perfect. And you probably, I'm going to guess, when you came back, there were people that you had maybe been friendly with before that they're like, oh, you're back. And so you're trying to rebuild those connections. That's a very easy way to do it. Yep, exactly, exactly. Casey, were, you, I, like, were you out at all to anybody, no. including yourself? Like, had you admitted no. to? Okay. No, not at that, not at that point. And so uh, like that was the beginning of 10th grade. Um, I started going to this Assembly of God uh, church, which in evangelical terms, if you're familiar with any of them, this is like the... Uh, charismatic kind of wave your hands in the air being slain in the spirit speaking in tongues kind of thing so great music lots of fun I mean for a, for this like closeted gay kid like that was like oh my gosh it was amazing <laughs> it was so great for a religion that's like gay people are bad it is very flamboyant and over the top and very theatrical so gay exactly they also there's two d- different sects of in my head of evangelicalism where like you're once saved, always saved. We're like, once you say that prayer, you're saved. You can do what the hell you want to. doesn't matter. Uh, and then there's the other side where it's like, you're going to backslide and you have a chance of like losing your salvation. Um, because I felt so horrible about myself because I had these thoughts and feelings like I felt horrible. And so I would always go to altar every Sunday to recommit my life to God because I was such a horrible person. I ended up coming out to my best friend in 10th grade at some point. And then I ended up telling my youth pastor, no, did I? Maybe I was, I wanted to so bad, but I didn't. I just told my best friend. He took it okay. And uh, and he's just, he was still, I mean, we're still, we're still friends. When did you, when did you begin to suspect? When did that, that realization start to dawn on you? Maybe as early as five or six, like we had these neighborhood friends down the street and Growing up, apparently it's normal for like people to kids to experiment and do all this stuff. And like, so I was experimenting with this, this uh, neighbor kid down the street and we were just experimenting a lot. And hey, like for a, for a lot, like extended time when I was five, all the way probably until I was eight or nine until I moved away, this was going on. Um, and by like, by that point, I was like, this is, this is not just like something like, I like, I like this. Yeah. It's you're right. It is. It is very natural for young children, five, six, even seven to go. Oh, I'm really curious about parts. 
right? And what does your body look like? What is my, what is, you know, how am I different? If I'm a anatomically male, what does a female body look like? What do you think, what does it physically feel like? Like literally like, is this soft? Is this hard? What does it do, right? I think your intuition is right, which is like that kind of tapers off fairly quickly. Be, once, once kids are like, oh yeah, yeah, my curiosity is satisfied. So for you to say like, it was like three or four years. I think I remember one asking one time, like, I was like, do you think we're gay? And he's like, no. I was like, yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> I don't either. Of course. I just wanted to make sure you. We are not gay. Yeah, we as a, as a two of sure. us, yes, we're not gay. Yeah. You're, you are steeped in a heteronormative Christian culture. Cracking that topic open a little bit is really scary. And then when someone goes, absolutely not, you're like, oh yeah, just me too. With that being said, like sex, like sex was like a thing very early. Um, I don't even, I mean, I have a lot of sex issues, but like things were sexualized very early on. And I like the need for validation and sexual validation, like ended up becoming a huge thing. I think just because of how early that set in to to go way, 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 way back. We always have these moments when we're little, like the now that you like, just know, like you remember, like, how did you remember that at two years old? So there's this moment, I was at my grandmother's and there was something that I was doing that I needed her help with. And she's like, you should already know how to do that by now. And this is what happens. <laughs> so, and it's like, two years old like I'm this kid that like my grandmother just like told me like this thing that like I didn't know how to do really I should know how to do it well I don't know what else I don't know how to do so like throughout like that's the start of my this this perfectionist thing of like always needing to fit in and feeling not fitting in and like I'm definitely not Either I, I am something intrinsically wrong with me because I don't know how to do everything or I just definitely felt other as a kid. And on top of that, if I ask for help, I like I can't ask for help because I'm going to get chastised because I should already know how to do it. So actually, so it's always awkward to talk about. Like it was, I was, I was actually trying to wipe my butt and I was like, I needed my grandmother to wipe my butt because I was, I don't know, two. And she, that's the thing. So yeah, for like months after that, I wouldn't wipe my butt. And my parents were like, what is wrong with this kid? I felt like I just, I froze. Like I couldn't do it. And I didn't know how to, I couldn't ask for help. God forbid I asked for help. Um, so I finally learned, <laughs> finally learned. Like it did a few months ago. I'm really proud of you. <laughs> yeah, Your yeah. fiance was like, uh, okay, I we need to okay, what's going on? get this fixed. Yeah, right. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it is so interesting how we take something that probably no one meant in the way that we took it, but that's how we take it. And it becomes sticking point for us where things like, you know, it's like a do not pass go unless you have cleared that hurdle. I absolutely get that. Your grandma probably didn't mean anything by it. Not at all. Not at all. I wouldn't, I barely did any, like, I think like soccer was the only thing I actually tried when I was a kid because like, I didn't want to do anything that took risk. If I didn't know how to do it perfectly, I'm not going to do it because I'm not going to submit myself to possible shame and failure or rejection. Um, so now I feel other. Now I don't feel like I'm like everybody else. Um, then I start having these feelings and then growing up in a blue collar area, even before going into just like, 
like, okay, oh, okay, all right, well, that's me then. Like, so I am other, I am wrong. I get into the church. And the church is like, yes, God doesn't like you. I mean, they didn't say it directly to me because I because I, mean, I, I try to show up, but like, yeah, God doesn't like you. Uh, this is wrong. Uh, you're an abomination. Perfect. This is the narrative. This fits. This is exa- exactly right. So maybe I just need to pray more. Maybe I just need to read the Bible more. Maybe I just need to do X. So it was all about doing because I was never, I never felt enough. And so I had to do all this stuff. And so hypervigilance, I'm always looking outward for approval, for attention, because I still need, I needed to fit in. I needed people to like me. So this little kid needs this validation and never, and still have this little, this little kid is still there. And I still need to talk to this little kid. We haven't gotten there yet, but like, it's still this need for validation and attention is still run rampant at 40 because of that, that moment. Um, but, you know, I put like, I've found narratives that have made, like have gotten to where I am. So like the, the church narrative came in. So uh, junior year of high school, I moved to Virginia, I went to a public school, was kind of thriving. I, you know, I felt very confident in my faith. I mean, all that was when it comes to gay stuff was really just like, porn and masturbation like every like just that normal well not normal yeah just normal stuff so uh but still you know feeling awful inside for doing these things because i'm i'm a horrible person uh so i i my senior year i started like sco student christian organization love love that so um i found this i started got my job at this bagel place and this guy this guy was a youth leader at this other church um and so i started going to this other church um, codependency is also part of my story. <laughs> and I got so codependent on this really hot uh, youth leader and like would tell him everything. And then he started giving me attention. And like, so I would do anything to get that attention. I even tried to say that I tried to kill myself. And I was, I mean, I was definitely, I was definitely depressed in high school. I still, I was going through all that, but like, uh, and then he's like, well, I need to tell Brett, the youth pastor. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, just kidding. I, I didn't really mean to do that. You don't have to tell my parents. And we, but he he told them many faster. Like I convinced the hell out of them that this didn't actually happen because they're like, well, we have to. It's like like law. We have to tell your parents. I'm like, don't like you don't need to. Like literally, I was just trying to get his attention, and they they believe me. And like I do remember being in high school and being on my bed and just like just like putting a tie to my neck and just like why because i was just so depressed but like i like look around my room i'm like this place is a mess like i can no i couldn't i couldn't die right now and then i connected with brett moore the youth pastor these people that i looked up to and i like i they gave me a sense of purpose and, and i wanted their attention and validation so bad um and i finally came out to my youth pastor at this mission trip to mexico in 99 when i was I just in between my junior and senior year and you know he's like you know what I love you. I don't, I don't know exactly what to do, but I love you. God loves you. And we'll deal with this shit together. I, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate those words. I really wish he just would have said, fuck you. You're horrible. Because I I was, that would have probably gotten me out of the church a little bit faster, Mm -hmm. but it didn't. He, he loved me. Still loves me. Uh, Still talk to him. He's apologized for a lot of the things that uh, that he did. He didn't do it uh, like just the way. Well, that's further down the line on this. But um... so I'm really curious. You mentioned something that 
we spoke with someone else who grew up in a very fundamentalist Christian family. But one thing that you had just said, almost like a throwaway. Yeah, I was depressed. One thing we heard from this person is that no, she was depressed. She had anxiety. No one took that seriously. Did you have the same experience in your family that like you can just pray yourself out of this uh, emotional, mental well-being issue? The no, also when so my parents kind of like had a lot of it was very hands-off especially with my mom because my mom grew up in a really really uh, just tough household like abusive household with my um, grandfather and she um so she mentioned how her room was her sanctuary and like her safe space so like when the door was closed in my room or in my brother's room like don't don't go we go we would walk we would go and hang out with her a lot and um and just on her bed and talk but like when the door was closed like that was your space. So I don't even know if I told her too much about my depression. Um, I was seeing a school counselor uh, a lot. I would go to my counselor a lot and maybe it was kind of manipulative because I knew how to like work with like, Hey, I'm having a rough time and I get this papers due. Can you give me an extension? And she would <laughs> totally, but it, I mean, I was, I was like, I don't really press like, and I, of course I was like, I was trying to, I was trying to be this person, this better person of like, and and I couldn't I couldn't be this thing that I needed to be, uh, so of course I was depressed and anxious. And all and then, of this is feeding your narrative about not being yeah. enough, not and not doing enough, not praying Correct. enough. It's just con- like every like that narrative is just constantly getting quote reaffirmed for you. Correct. Yep. And then uh, at the end of my senior year, uh, the youth leader that I um, I was codependent on came back from a conference and he saw this place called exodus and it, and by the way it came out to him too he gave me these pamphlets for it was like this ex-gay organization uh that had all these ministries for conversion therapy this was it like oh my gosh not only am i gay there's now a place where it can fix it and there's like actual stuff i can do so, but I was always so scared. I was like, oh, I don't know. So uh, I went off to college uh, to Missouri for a year. During that time, I there was this like CD called The Map. And it like it was this like thing about talking about your sexuality and how to uh, talk about the whole thing about repair, conversion therapy is like you have an overbearing mother and it's like a, like a non-dominant father. Your sense of masculinity is is like thwarted diminished so you know and then you get to puberty and you don't have that connection real connection with a man so it gets sexualized and so if you just you know became more masculine you would develop your feelings for uh and, and become straight and like one after that so let me get this straight let me get this straight the the underlying i'm gonna put this in quotes theory about at least this brand of conversion therapy, I, who knows how many different there are, right? Is that being gay or having homosexual feelings, because you're not gay, right? Really what you're doing is somehow transferring your desire to have a strong relationship with your dad and need a role model from your dad, who isn't a role model, into some sort of affection for another male. And if you could just 
cut that and be the person that you wished your dad could be, then you wouldn't have these feelings anymore. Then you would fill your own masculinity hole. Is that sort of how? In a sense, yeah. Since your dad didn't, you know, instilling you a sense of masculinity, you're still all you want is that attention from a male. And then I got sexualized, uh, and so now you just need to develop your masculinity more. And there was this horrible book called Wild at Heart that really it was. Oh my gosh, it was it was, it was so melodramatic. I loved it, but it was so just toxic. Like all like. The Gladiator and Brave Heart were like the best movies ever, and like just and so like you would. I mean, honestly, if 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 you couldn't get straight by reading that book, like I don't, I just it's obviously it's 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 not real because uh, it's just ridiculous. Um, but that was it. So now, so I found these ministries. They had support groups, just kind of what what I'm doing right now with recovery. So that was a little triggering when I got to recovery. Uh, oddly enough, one of the pastors was actually pretty like he for so long, I was disassociating myself between like the good and I went by CJ. So the good CJ and the bad CJ where I was like this good Christian guy. And then at night I would, you know, go look at porn for hours and hours, and hours and drink off. And then like, like I couldn't remember anything that I looked at because I was so disassociated. So he like helped me kind of be my own one person again, which was very helpful. But at the same time, still like okay well you're this one person but you're still bad because you still the person that you feelings. are is yeah, not good. is not whole it's well it's and of course they didn't say like that you are a good person you are loved by god you're just broken and you need sexual wholeness so i went through this like sexual wholeness uh, course by andy commissary called living waters it's really really horrible okay, uh, so can i just pause for a second because you're looking at pamphlets for like these conversion therapies and you're reading books and stuff what does it what do these pamphlets say are there like action items at like if you go to conversion therapy these are the types of things we'll do or is it kind of very abstract so for the support groups, it was very much like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I, I looked at porn today. I uh, accidentally, I went, like I had sex with a guy and it was like, okay, great. Well, like accidentally had sex I mean, with I, a guy. Yeah, you know, I fell into it. Anyway. I slipped. <laughs> I fell into a hole. 10 times. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's, these support groups sound like using the, AA, the Alcoholics Anonymous exactly. model, or whatever, which is like exactly, yeah, it's a yep. gay people anonymous. Like, I have a problem, and I recognize I have a problem, and I can only, you know, get better by accepting I have a problem and giving my life up to God, and just taking one day at a time, not to act. Right? I think there is this huge. Uh, it seems like the conversion therapy and it's all based on this, like, that's a thing that you do, not a person you are, right? It's not an identity. It's not inside. It's not a part of you. It's a behavior. Correct. That needs to be fixed, right? And so if it's a behavior, you can not do the behavior. If it's, if it's an identity, if it's some, someone who you actually are, well, we can't fix that, right? So to turn it from something that's a core part of your identity to you're acting in these ways. It's like, you know, some, someone being a bad driver, right? It's like, you're not inherently a bad driver. You're, you're poor, you're driving poorly, 
right? You're making bad driving choices, which is exactly, you know, and of course, then you can be fixed. You just got to learn the right skills and right. You just got to think about differently. All the, that's what the AA model is based on. Yeah. So, and like, so it's all about doing is like, you're just, you're not enough and you just need to do this more. You need to read your Bible more. You need to do accountability. You need to not do this and not do that. And just like, oh, I mean, so there was also this online um, support group for youth that were, we say we were struggling with same sex attraction um, because being gay is a political identity that you did not associate with. (laughs) It was like, it's so ridiculous. (laughs) When it comes to indoctrination, they're saying the right things to get you to renounce all that stuff. Right. Yeah. And I did that for four years. I would go to the Exodus conferences. Like I wanted to be, once again, this ego thing of like, I want to, I want to be seen. I want to be validated. Like I want to be the XK poster boy because I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be poster boy for reparative therapy and it's going to work and it's going to be amazing. And I'm going to have all these blessings and I'm going to have a wife and I'm going to have a kid. And I'm going to make rising better than my dad did like all this stuff. And it did, it didn't work. Like it wasn't working as much as I tried. Like there's guys like that would, you know, hook up at these, like we would, we go to these conferences and then there's these, the, that living hope forum that we were on. Um, we would go to these like, uh, camps uh, like retreats and we called it XK camp and we wanted it so bad and we would strive and strive and do all the things we we're told to do and it just wasn't enough like some people just said fuck it like and they left and of course we didn't talk to those people and we could not talk to those people like and that was one of the things was we could not give our contact information out to any of these people that we we met at the retreat because Ricky the guy who was still around and he's still doing this it did like you you needed to be like guarded because you can't because on your own you're gonna hook up and you're gonna be you know you're gonna be bad and horrible and so we but then we you know then we exchanged facebook friend oh my gosh it was this huge ordeal and it was so dramatic and like you're supposed to be like cut off from the group but he was like no it was this is my fault so he banned himself for like three months from the online forum because of this it was he put us into these positions. It was so ridiculous. Anyhow. So he guilted you into that. Well, he guilted like, he's like, oh my gosh, well, we didn't care. We were so starting for connection. And like, here are these other people that are our age dealing with these same things. Like, of course, of course we wanted to be around them. And yeah, there was some sexual tension. I never, but I never acted on it, but I still felt horrible. And it was still like, I was never doing enough. And I, in college, I was diagnosed with anxiety, depression, depression. Um, and I was talking about how, you know, at this point I was, I'd come out in college in my, my Baptist college and I was in Texas now, um, cause I wanted to, so I wanted to be a youth pastor, um, cause I loved how that like my, my youth pastor like really like cared about me and I wanted to care about these kids that were going through shit cause I went through shit and when I was there uh, in college in Texas, I I became, I was a youth leader for a little bit at this church and I wanted to be open and honest with them about my same sex attractions. And so I did. And they're like, you know, I don't think you should be around kids while you're dealing with this because, you know, I just, you know, you shouldn't be around kids. And I was like, oh, of course you would say that because like, yeah, because like at the time, like that's what people thought. Like, I mean, I'm not going to have sex with your children, but like, I get why. And I was like, okay. So slowly and surely my dreams of 
of wanting to help people like like yeah like just got pushed down and like so like the next one was like well maybe generally i can help people maybe i can be in ministry and then like but i couldn't get my shit together enough to get over this by junior year of college i could barely finish a paper or anything i was so i was so depressed and i was so anxious like usually that drive that like you know that last minute drive to get the paper done we're just like issued like it crushed me. It finally like I couldn't even I have done sixteen page essays in like twelve hours. <laughs> yeah. And I was doing so like and then would get A's on them and I didn't even proofread them. And so like but then I couldn't I couldn't do it anymore. And I um I started working at Abercrombie, which everyone was like, Oh my gosh, that's you're you are definitely going against the Lord. Oh well, okay, okay, because that the advertising there was very sexualized. Very at the time. Sexual. Oh yeah, I was like, it's not known for being a particularly like gay store, but it yes, all this advertising was very sexual. Okay, fine. I'm just trying to put that. Well, because there's like all kinds of levels. We're talking about sexuality generally. Then we're talking about homosexuality, homosexual yeah. behavior, and then we're talking about homosexual identity, right? And then on top of all of that, this is, or underlying all of that, however you want to think about it, is this need that every person has. It's not like, right, every person has to belong, to feel valuable, to feel like they're contributing, um, to know where their place is, um, and to so desperately want that. Yeah. And, and if they don't have the, like, when stuff isn't real, pithy. Then they'll find it where then people find it wherever they can. Yeah, and on top of that, I'm a 21 year old male. Like, I want to have sex. Like, it's <laughs> right. So, and I'm like dying inside. And so, eventually, I start like I get the job at Abercrombie in the summer in Virginia, and I'm like backsliding, if you will, of just like you know, like kind of resolving like this is not working. And I, I hook line and seeker into the Abercrombie image I wanted to be the Abercrombie like I like that was who I was attracted to that's who I wanted to be and act like even though I definitely had some, I was I was still kind of chubby in college but anyway um I worked in the back for a little bit and then, and then I became the I was able to go out and you were a model but, quote then okay. I was a model yeah and then yeah and then I was a manager and then, so then so I I quit so but then I started going out to the bars like to the gay bars and and in uh, college, I would sneak off instead of going. The recovery thing uh, was up in Dallas, and I was two hours south, so I would drive to Dallas every Thursday to go to this like uh, recovery meeting. Well, I skipped it because I met this guy at hotornot.com. So recovery. Oh. When you say recovery meeting, are you talking about conversion therapy? Sorry, re thanks for yeah the conversion therapy recovery like the, oh, the support recovering from be having same sex. The, yeah, yeah, the support group. Sorry, I'm and going that, back to the window. So, so hot or not, you can was call it gay a. Instead of AA, yeah, gay, gay, yeah, I went to gay, yeah. But hot or not was like the pre grinder type. Yeah, so I mean, like, there's like gay sites, like there was like the AOL chat rooms. There's gay.com, which I was on too. But then there's also like hot or not was kind of like just coming up with MySpace, I believe, maybe. And um, it was an upvote downvote thing, wasn't it? Where upvote, it's like someone yeah. put their picture and be like. Am I hot or not? And then people would vote on whether you're yeah, hot or not. So horrible. And then I imagine there was some like commenting section too there yeah you yeah you can connect and then you get to pay for it but yeah like and so i got this uh so i hung out with this guy and we went to like 
so in Dallas, there's the Gaberhood on Cedar Springs, and it's just like there's this row of gay bars, and it was so like I think this, yeah, this was like my first experience going out to the gay bars, and it was amazing. It was amazing. How so? How so? How was it amazing? Because for one, I was like with this hot guy uh, in my head, um, and I was already kind of drunk at this point because we had dinner before. I went to one bar and like hung out to care. There's a karaoke thing. And then like, but I'm around these gay people that were like, that didn't care. That like were gay. And it was, I was so, and then we went to like the roundup, which is like the gay country bar. And I saw people two dancing together and it was like, what? And then we went to JR's, which is like this bigger, like this big bar, huge bar. Um, and now it's just this like chill bar with, you know, drink beer, all that stuff. And that was great. And then we went upstairs. There was this like dance club upstairs and I took my shirt off and I made out with a guy on the dance floor. What? I'm like, no, this is not supposed to be happening. And then I ended up, I ended up going home with this guy and I don't think anything really happened because I don't think he was like super interested in me, probably because I was a fucking mess. But like, I remember his roommate, like, I remember that his roommate, it was just like, I don't know, two or three in the morning. He's like, do you want any Coke? And I was like, no, thank you. I'm a Christian. <laughs> that is <Wow>. awesome answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> what about the gay guy? No problem. Coke? Uh, no. Dancing, no, no, making out with people, taking your shirt off, drinking. That was one thing, but like but hard, I hardcore don't do drugs. Yeah. I, I want to dare. How like, dare was... you, sir? <laughs> no, just say no. And I said no. You did. You I'm did. a Christian. And you gave the reason. Yeah. Uh, so that I eventually said yes, but I'll get to there, I guess. Um, yeah. So fall term was when I like came back, and I still was. I was working at Abercrombie, making five fifteen an hour, driving half an hour up to Waco to do this job. I'm in like serious credit card debt. Uh, because at that time, people like banks were just giving cards away to kids, like giving them, and like yes, and I was like. Abercrombie was not cheap. Yeah. <laughs> and still no, no, and cheap. you have to buy the clothes. You to buy the oh, you have to buy the clothes, and I was happy to like I was popping my double collar. Like I was like, <laughs> I was, I was, I got, I was like thousands of dollars in debt, depressed, stressed, like, and then I, I don't know if I knew that I was going to drop out of college at that point, but like at, at Christmas break, I, I got all my stuff and I came home and I'm like, I'm not going back. I can't go back. Uh, and I, I actually, so my mom was living and my brother and brother were living in a two bedroom townhouse at the time. And I just, I was sleeping on the couch for a while. Uh, cause I was still working at Abercrombie making five seventy five an hour in, in Virginia. And I would then go on gay.com and I was still, okay. So this was a slow thing. So my youth pastor had moved up to Richmond as well with his family. I was starting to come out with these more like liberal viewpoints there was this book called New Kind of Christian. It was this postmodern ideas of, of Christianity. And like, he started like getting delving deep into this thing. Uh, and it, he got fired from his job because he was a little too ecumenical. Like, like he, his views were, were becoming a little too liberal and a little too, too progressive. Open, too progressive. So he decided, to, uh, a bunch of them decided to start this church. And I kind of was a part of that. Um, but then at this point, like I was back and forth. I was like starting to dip my toes in. Um, and for like a year, I was like, I, I was back and forth. And then I finally became a manager at Abercrombie. I was making $20,000 a year at that point. Still nothing. What's, but it feels like a lot more compared oh, yeah. to you're like, wow, $5. look at that. Yeah. 
yeah, I was at MIT making 21,000. And then, um, but uh, I, and at that point, I went to my last Exodus uh, conference right after I got that job. Uh, and I left there knowing that I'm never coming back to this thing. Like that was, I'm done. I'm done. So can I, can I ask a, uh, maybe a delicate question and you don't have to answer it, but the conversion therapy model that people hear about is a lot of times like kids taken in the middle of the night, you know, against their will, which we know that you weren't, that you, you know, willingly went, but that there was, you know, shock therapy or like violence and, and infliction of pain. Can you talk on that a little bit? A little bit. So um, one of my, uh, one of my sponsors uh, in the program, in the recovery program, uh, he also went through uh, reparative therapy, probably a little like He's much, I mean, like, so reparative much, therapy like, and conversion therapy. Reparative therapy and conversion therapy, the same thing. It's reparative sounds nicer. And he he had shock therapy done to him. Um, and he didn't talk too much about it, just the fact that it happened. So there was that. By that point, in like the late 90s, early 2000s, it was definitely more like tame and more like marketed a little bit better. Uh, and like, yeah. Yeah, so it was definitely more uh, support-based model as opposed to uh, that type of crazy um, thing. This is still going on, by the way. This is still going on in America. It is not against the law fully here yet, just with children, um, just with kids. So it is still happening. And, they, and so Exodus that I was a part of uh, in 2013 or maybe in 10 or something, the, the president came out and said at the beginning of the Exodus conference, he's like, uh, we have to shut this down because it's not working. Uh, and I'm so sorry for everyone that has um, had to go through this stuff. Um, and so they shut it down. They shut access down. But, but obviously there are people there that were not happy about that. Um, and so they have, there's, they got, I think it's uh, hope something. Um, doesn't matter. It's horrible. Uh, it's still out there and people are still getting indoctrinated and groomed into that shit. Um, and, but um, I got off a tangent and I don't know where I need to go back to. So you, but, were saying, um, you were saying that you left your last conference and you're like, I'm not going back. This is it. Yeah. I knew that it was, uh, so I slowly and surely came out, but what I pretty much resigned to the fact that I didn't do enough. Right. Like I, and I need, I, I'm going to, just give in to my desires because I don't know I'm going to kill myself if I don't. So, and it's like, and I just, I love the feeling of being sneaky and all that stuff. So I must be this horrible person that um, I, you know, always believe myself to be. So um, I slowly came out. I would go on a gay.com and instead of hooking up with people, I would actually get them to come with me to the bars because I needed, to, I was so afraid to go by myself um, in Richmond, Virginia. That's what we did. I would like meet these guys and we'd go to the bars and I would get drunk enough to sometimes go hook up. And I was super awkward on it. Uh, they still had this like sense of like, this is wrong. And then I met uh, my first boyfriend and that um, was this huge codependent craziness that like lasted for two months. And then he broke the people like, whoa, this kid's like a lot. And I was, and we, he, he like ghosted me for like a week. And then I was like, you were the one you, two months in, you were it. Like, this is the first time, like, I believe that I could love a man that I really cared about him. And then like, this could, I like, of course I like would want this. Like, this is, I was telling myself for so long that like, this couldn't happen. And now I'm like, this is happening. 
And then he's like, actually not. And I was like, no. And I was, I was, I was horrible. Like I, I went online and like created this different profile and catfished him uh, with this other guy. So I can kind of see what he's saying about me. <laughs> like, dude, I was, I was mean. Well, you have helped me understand why one reason why someone might catfish someone. Cause I was like, why would you do that? Like, yeah. If, if, if you're trying to get that person connect with you, why would you pretend to be someone else? But I never thought about this, but my MO as Kosha knows is to be like, just to power, like, I'm literally just going to power straight through it. I'm not taking any side routes. I'm not going to back up. I'm not going to try something different. I'm just going to like, literally I'm the battering ram that just goes right through it. So I only think about one way forward, which is like through the thing in the midst of you talking about how tough this was, I really appreciate that you clarified one reason why someone might catfish someone. Yeah. For me, it was like, I needed to know what you're saying about me. Cause like what, part, like all this part of my story is like, I, I need to, I don't believe in myself, but I'm going to create this character. Um, I'm going to put the clothes on him. I'm going to, he's going to act this way. He's going to like, and I, and, and to be what I need everyone else to see me as. Like I, I wear this mask and I, and I was really good at creating this mask so I could get the results I needed. I needed you to see me this way. You, Cause I didn't think I was lovable by myself. So but I, you were so I, action oriented. I can imagine there is a part of you that was like, but I did everything right. I did, yeah. The thing I went by the script it to get you to love me and you still did it. So, but in my head it was I did all of this yet I just didn't do enough and I know that parents in the child-oriented community you know in the 80s and 90s and I would say probably even the the 2000s right didn't understand how how reinforcing an identity just becomes the identity yeah right this now you know it's like it's the it's the difference between telling a kid and my best friend loves to tell me the story uh, when my older kid was a two, three, something like that um, and was throwing stuff. I would tell them not to throw. I'd be like, no throwing. And that just meant that they learned to say no throwing when they were throwing. So to say, don't be this person. This is bad. Don't be this person. What you learn to do is beat yourself up and tell yourself not to be that person while you're being that person, that person. like while you're doing yeah, yeah. that behavior, right? Yeah. If you keep getting told this makes you a bad person. Yeah. After a while, you can try for a while to be a quote unquote good person, but after a while you're like, I guess I'm just a bad person. I might as well enjoy myself while I'm being a bad person. Like, because I'm a bad person either way and this way is miserable. So I might as well have fun while I'm being a bad person. I was literally going to kill myself. Like I, I, like that was like, that was where I was going. And I'm like, I can't, like, I, I always like, but I love myself. Like I was like, I'm such a narcissist in my head. Like I'm like, I, I don't know what I, I'm, it's very confusing, but yeah. You like, and so kill, like you wanted to kill yourself. I wanted to die. Want to like die. I wanted to die. Yeah. I, but you I did. Okay. Die, so you like, wanted to yeah. die, but you didn't want to I wanted to die, but I didn't want to kill myself. But like, if I kept, if I kept like, it was just so much like I, like it wasn't working and I still thought it was my fault. And I just, but I, and I was so just enraptured in this, these uh, like with, 
with the gay lifestyle with you know with being gay it was and so i was like fuck it and but the thing was i had to you know deconstruct my faith um which is such a buzzword right now is deconstruction i'm like i did that in 2006 and 7 <laughs> um <laughs> you're the poster boy for deconstruction you were yes, the poster boy for something and no one knew <laughs> We'll tell you didn't everyone. make a poster, that's why. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't on a poster, but yeah. So I, I came out at this point. I was a mess, um, and I, I started to drink heavily because that's what we did. Like that's how we connected, and like um, not realizing that like to have sex with anyone, I needed to drink heavily because I didn't feel okay in my own skin. Because obviously, even though I would like put my faith away, like I still had this idea that that this sex is wrong that like sex is like it's just not okay and it's a different way of dissociating right it's just yeah. a different way of of splitting yourself into two pieces and saying well it's not I, I did it when i was drunk like a lot of people are like well i was drunk and then that's the the excuse cover or whatever you want to call it for engaging in behavior that they wouldn't right a lot like there's a step like yeah. yeah there's a gate between you know, what you're doing and, and what you're not doing when you are sober, but then that gate's gone or, or that you let that gate be gone. Right. Like the alcohol is like, you just get to go, Oh, I'm just going to not even deal with the gate because I'm drunk. So. Well, the thing like, like in a sense, like alcohol saved my life. Like at the time, like it, it gave me the opportunity to be okay with myself. It gave me this, this in to finally like breathe and not care. Cause I care for so long. I'm so like, I, I every and it was so bad like it's my ego is was and is it's still so like i'm walking down the street and I'm like okay this person I, this guy's a, this guy's attractive i need him to believe i'm attractive so i'm gonna like act a certain way i don't even know how to own it so i can't i'm not the one that like gives those like eyes and like tries to like yeah it's right. like that freaks me out but i still need that person to to like me so i just have this in my head i'm like okay i'm gonna act cool and straight and gonna think that i'm hot um it's just it's it's exhausting but it's just like uh i didn't realize in the program until i got into the pro into the 12-step program that like not everyone thinks like that like that's not how people live their life like going down the street and trying to get people to think you're attractive like that's not how typically that works so i'm drinking but like but, but you know when i'm drunk i'm just like i don't care so much and it was great and but i was getting sloppy which I think, as I said in the beginning, like I didn't have my repercussions and I was like this affable drunk. I forget, like there are times, like I remember driving, because Richmond, you always, you couldn't just like walk everywhere. It wasn't like a big downtown. So you would drive to these bars. So many times I would drive home and not remember they drive home. I would just like be parked and like, oh, well, that's weird. That's great. Um, <laughs> so many times, like I could have killed someone, like, a, a, like I definitely have luck on that, that regard. But then uh, there were these guys that used to live in Richmond that would come down from DC to these like cool parties that Richmond would have every once in a while. And I was at one of them and they were, and they like, they saw me and they're like, oh boy, here's this cute little kid. Like gotta help him out. Like get him to the, like a totally like, I, and this guy Paul um, really like took a shiny to me and I, I would see him every once in a while when he come to Richmond. And finally I quit my job at Abercrombie and this was the time, and I got a job at General Financial. It was my first big boy job. And so he's like, hey, come to DC. I was like, 
it's gonna be great like i'll we'll show you around I'll take you to dinner and do all this stuff like because it was like this like a mentorship kind of thing where like yeah well we know you can't afford shit so just come up here we'll we'll take care of you have a good time and i did i had a great time i got drunk really like really drunk uh that first night and then the next day i was struggling throughout and we had brunch and struggling it was such a struggle and by like mid afternoon, like everyone's doing just fine. And I'm like, struggle bus. So uh, someone was like, hey, give this kid a pen cap. And I'm like, what's that? And like, they're like, okay. So this baggy white stuff comes out and he's like, put it in your nose. And so I did it and it burned like crazy. Um, kind of find out that was meth. Uh, so I did meth for the first okay, time. Okay. So I had no idea that you could snort meth. Yes. Yep. There's so many different also, ways you can snort you it. Did... You can okay. Sn- you skipped over Coke altogether. You yeah, went straight Yeah, that was going to be my question. Oh, yeah. No. Coke's- like, I you heard, just went straight I to meth. I a bag of white stuff, and I thought, Powder. Coke. Yeah. Yeah, that's what everyone thinks. Like, oh, and I thought that was Coke. Nope, nope meth. It burned real bad. Um, you know, but, like, when I was, like, in my messy phase in that summer, um, someone gave me ecstasy, and someone gave me Coke for the first time, and I was just like, fuck you to my old ex because like he was like he said he did drugs and i'm gonna show him so i'm gonna do drugs uh so like i did that one time and it was like so and i didn't really feel the ecstasy because i had so much coke <laughs> anyhow uh, plus i was really drunk so but so so when you did meth for the first time you didn't know you were about to do meth for the first time i just knew it was like a white powder and i was like i assumed it was coke and wow. uh, they're like oh yeah that's crystal that's tina they call it tina um so yeah it's just tina it's, it's cool and it, it woke me right up and wow. it, was, it was fine so um and we kept on going for the rest of the night like i was hanging out having a good time this other guy came in and he's like here there's ketamine i'm like okay so i did a line of ketamine um and great and then so then i was driving i had to drive home to richmond the next morning i don't think i slept at all uh because i had to get to genworth at 11 30 to be to accept my job offer wow and it was just the week before Thanksgiving. So I go in there to uh, the hiring manager. She's like, here's your offer. I'm like, yes, great. She's like, what are you doing for uh, holidays? I was like, nothing at all. She's like, great, because you got to do a drug test within 48 hours. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> so uh, that was great. I freaked the fuck out. Um, right. Uh, and um, As I one does when they've been yeah, doing After doing drugs, drugs for the first time the night before. For forty eight so, hours, right? I drank cranberry juice oh my to, to, to drink. I did like the beat it out seal. Drink. I yeah, and so I got there at seven thirty on the Wednesday, like as further as you could go. Yes, and I might and I may have said I was like I just and I took Adderall. I was like I think I just said took a bunch of Adderall. I don't know if that will show up or not. Like whatever. Um, one thing that they don't do for jobs is tell you if you passed your drug test. Because they assume you passed your drug test. And I didn't start work for two weeks. So for two weeks, I'm waiting to find out if I passed. And no, so I like went to my first day of work, like sweating. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, wait, well, maybe I it just wasn't told. Uh, no, I got nothing. And it's fine. Oh, Apparently, wow. Wow. nothing showed up. Nothing showed up. Either that or like some, well, it probably is fast metabolizing them within 40 yeah, no, hours. It's like, yeah, it's usually 40 hours. And they didn't do that much. And they don't test for K because of you know, a tranquilizer. They, um, in fact, they were probably testing like, did you do uh, marijuana? Like I imagine- right. or, that, like, or Coke, right? Or, yeah, like, or Coke. It's, it's expensive. I like how we've gotten to the point where it's like, 
thank God that bag of white stuff was meth and not coke. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. otherwise, right. Casey wouldn't have gotten the job. Right. But that is so, not, no, that is not how anyone on this podcast feels. Okay. No. So, um, and that was like the start of like the, the, the my office job. And then, so I would slowly go to DC like once a month. And then it was every two weeks. And, you know, the program I talk about it, like um, what, what became occasionally used became daily use. It wasn't, it took a while to get there. Um, but like the second or third time I was up there, people were already smoking it. So I was introduced to smoking it and that's a completely different high. It's very social. Like everyone's passing around this like glass pipe. And it was just like, and then I was up for hours. I didn't really do, like, I wasn't very sexual at that point. Like, I didn't feel very confident uh, in that, on drugs and having sex. So, but I would talk, everyone's ear off. Typically about religion, it's really ironic. But I would just talk forever and we would dance because we would go out and dance and do all this stuff. And then I met a guy that was using heavily and we were dating. And then right as we were dating, his ex got arrested for meth and it was weird. And then, and so like I started seeing the repercussions coming on to these other people around me. Um, and then I broke up with that guy and then I started dating his ex because he was a DJ. And even though he got arrested, it didn't matter. And then he, oh, that was a horrible breakup. It was very like this codependent craziness. But by the time, and I was going to DC, that was a two hour drive from Richmond. So, Every two weeks, I was doing that, and uh, finally, um, I eventually lost my job at Genworth because it was 2008, uh, and the economy dropped. 2009 was a quite a crazy year. So, in my meth use, I started having sex on it, and it started being very like uh, not being safe and not being and just like doing my thing. Um, so, 2009 happened. So, my birthday was on the seventh. I turned 27 and the next day I got laid off. I was the only person on my team for six months to get laid off. Like it was, it was me. And then six months later, everybody else on the team got laid off uh, because I kept up showing late on Mondays because I could be driving back down from Richmond. And like, it was, I got told five times from my boss, five times he said, this is the last time I'm going to tell you or else I'm going to have to let go. But I was so good at like knowing when like, Oh, okay, this is going to happen. I needed to come to him first. And I did and promised I was going to be better. And, Anyway, so got laid off. Um, it was great. Oh, perfect. I want to move to DC anyway. I'm going to go to nonprofit. I'm going to help people and yada, yada, yada. And then um, I go to DC, have this blowout weekend. And then, ah, like, so, so I got an injury um, uh, that landed and I, uh, on the couch for like a week. And then um, I, start seeing this like line coming up my leg, this weird red line. And I'm like, I'm going to go to the emergency room. And I was in DC. So uh, I went to GW hospital two days before an inauguration for um, Obama. Uh, and I get tested positive for HIV. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, and how long, how sort of, what's the time frame are we talking about here? So you started partying when, and this showed up when, so yeah, that was, uh, so 2000, the, the November 2006 was when I first touched the stuff. Um, by 2007, the end of 2007 is when I first dated that first guy. Uh, the beginning of 2008 was when I saw the dated that other guy. And then we broke up in May of 2008. And then I started going up to DC, got a job working in the door at this dance club. So I would go to, um, I would leave work at five o'clock, go up to DC, work the door at town. Um, 
uh, for a few hours and then all weekend would just be up parting my butt off and then come back down to Richmond. And that was going on um, until uh, 2009. So for about a year and a half, you were doing this like hard partying where you did mention like you were starting to have sex when you were high and and the right. safety started going was down. Not a concern. Right. Yeah. Was and not there, a concern. You know, right. Yeah. And I mean, I started I started meeting people that I knew were HIV positive and it wasn't that that sentence um, because people were taking pills. But like, and so I, I just assumed like everyone was taking their pills and I'm like, they're meth addicts. Like they're not, they're not getting, taking care of themselves. So whatever. So it's just positive. And in my head, like I, I didn't think too much of it. Like, I mean, I like, it sucks and like, it's a big deal, but like, I wait, 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 wait. back up, stop. Your response to being told that you were HIV positive was I'm sure they'll be fine. Well, I knew that was going to be okay. Cause I knew that like I, I had friends that were now positive that were just taking it's a pill. 2009. That, the, the, there's a huge mental shift it like society shift when it comes to hiv then then even in 10 years before that and maybe it's maybe it's the era that i grew up in where it, it definitely know, I, is. I came of i came of age when like literally People aids was hitting the right. scene yes you know i was 16 in the in the mid 90s so and i get i would guess and you can correct me if i'm wrong but in the gay community it is even more prevalent. Exactly. And in terms of like knowing people who are HIV positive and that are doing fine. Right. Yeah. And exactly. And then, so I'm in the drug scene, which is that it's, you know, more people are getting and testing positive for HIV. You're also in DC where DC at that time was, um, you can go to DC from anywhere. And if you're HIV positive, you can get free drugs free. So you can oh. get the healthcare you need. Cause they were very much, they wanted to, like lock it down. So they're very, very pro like pills and, 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 and treatment and case, uh, case management. So um, it was just like, it was kind of part of the culture people knew, but it's still, there's still a huge stigma against it. Still a huge stigma against it, even in the gay community. Um, but people I knew were okay. So I just like knew I was going to be okay. That's Plus fine. I was getting okay. high all the time. I was still getting high. So I didn't care. Like I just didn't care. So like I, in my head, I didn't think I'd care, but like, that was definitely the trajectory. That's where things stopped. I lost my job and I got sick and now I'm HIV positive. And like that put a full halt on the future of my life. Um, so I started, you know, going to DC and staying up there like all the time and I knew dealers. And so I started dealing, I started dealing meth. Um, and it was crazy, um, crazy. And coming from a place where you're like, I was at one point thousands of dollars in debt. And now, oh my gosh, this money is just being thrown at me as a dealer. Oh, no. Imagine. No, not, no, not that crazy. I'm not, I was not one of those dealers. I, I would buy G Star and all these clothing, but I couldn't pay my rent. It was crazy because I was doing these crazy, stupid things like, Go to San Francisco with a lot of cash and buy a lot of things and then send those things back. Oh, <laughs> I see. Yeah, like pounds of things. So anyhow, that was my life. And I was not good at it because I wanted everyone to like me. So I was giving things away. Mm, yeah, that's it. You can't be a good dealer. I want people to like me. Yeah, like we would go to these parties like, and then like, I'd just give it out because like, but I wanted people to like me. Um, and yeah. So I was, I was struggling. So that was like 2009. Um, and then I started 
shooting up, so doing it intravenously. So, um, which be, it was a became an insanely different thing. Um, how I used it and how I how things were like I became more isolated. I was very just like it was it was dark. It was very dark. Casey, I absolutely do not want to cut any of this story because it's so nuanced and there's so much going on. Is it okay if we do this in two parts? I think this is this might be our first two-part podcast episode yes. because we haven't even gotten to recovery. Recovery. Yeah. Well, and we haven't gotten to recovery and we haven't got to the part where you actually wrestle with your religious upbringing and like what has brought you to this place of no one's fully whole ever right but we're not actually the place where it's like and now I feel better about myself because I'm in therapy and I'm in a good relationship and like all these things that we know about what's going on now we're still going down into the depths of your valley here we're still descending yeah yeah so so I just don't want to speed past anything and I'm going to be honest with you I know that you are HIV positive, but I kind of forgot. Like when when you, were, <laughs> when you were going through this, when you were saying that you went to the hospital, I was like, oh, this is where he found out he was HIV HIV positive. So I'm a, I want to put a pin in this, and then can we pick it up again in this next like the next time? I think the pin is you went to the hospital and you found you had the red line in your leg. And you found out you were HIV positive. That's the trajectory of, yeah. Because you said like it put a stop in your life. So yeah, I really appreciate you being on. Yeah, me too. And I'm really sorry that we have a time crunch. That's okay. No, I get it. I get it. But we're going to say we're going to put a pin in this for part one. And um, we're going to just queue it up for part two, which will be coming up next week. Casey is speaking again again more <laughs> Casey is speaking more and we should all be that one that one will be called Casey won't shut up <laughs> yeah he's speaking he keeps speaking he just won't shut up <laughs> all right